to the Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be taking a break from our usual format of discussing Beef Watch newsletter articles. Today's Beef Watch Podcast is going to be around the topic of environmental adaptation and stress resilience in beef cattle and how we may be impacting that from a genetic selection standpoint. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Jared Decker, who's Associate Professor in Animal Science at the University of Missouri, and is also the WordAct Chair in Animal Genetics as part of that department. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dr. Decker, just tell us some more about yourself and your background, your current role there at Missouri before we dive into our topic today. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, northwest New Mexico. My dad had a job in town as an engineer, but we had a, a small farm, had some uh, Hereford cattle that, that I grew up with. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree at New Mexico State University. After the conclusion of that degree, I came to the University of Missouri to work on a PhD with Jerry Taylor. At the end of that, I started a postdoc funded by the USDA, and then in 2013, I was hired on faculty in a majority extension role. I was in that role for seven years, and then in 2021, I was moved into more of a research-heavy role, and I'm now the, the WARDAC chair. So my research strives to blend the history of populations, so what I would call population genetics or population genomics with quantitative genetics and genomics. So quantitative genetics would be uh, estimating heritabilities, calculating EPDs, those type of things. So we try to blend those two disciplines of genetics together to get a more accurate picture of what's happened in the past with cattle breeds and how we can make them more profitable into the future. One of the things you've been working on recently that I've really been of interest in is just looking at some of the traits that sometimes we haven't always had genetic selection tools for like we have with EPDs, things like hair shedding, uh, things like looking at just environmental adaptability to an environment, uh, stress resilience. Talk through with us a little bit some of the work you've been doing there and and some of the tools that are starting to be developed to help farmers and ranchers thinking about as they make genetic selection decisions, bringing in outside genetics, things that they might want to think through as they think about having cattle that fit their resources and their environment. Yeah, so in 2016, I was very fortunate to get a large grant from the USDA to look at local adaptation. So what I mean by local adaptation is matching the genetics of the cow to the environment and the stresses of that environment that we're asking her to be productive in. And so as part of that project, I, I think looking back, I, I thought I had a lot of the solutions, you know, locked and loaded and, and ready to go. And now being, you know, several years, the wiser have realized that really what we have is more questions than answers. So I think we're still kind of in the early days of really getting a handle on the genetics of local adaptation, the genetics of resilience to environmental stressors. So one of the research projects that we did as part of that USDA grant 
was actually looking at the history of selection in in beef cattle breeds and in the first paper that we published along those lines we looked at red angus semental and gelvy cattle and we we looked at three different things the first thing we looked at was the dna variants that had changed in frequency over time in those three breeds and those dna variants were mostly indicative of the response to selection on EPDs, the response to selection on visual traits like horned versus polled or coat color. So that's really directional selection where we're looking at what's changing over time due to the selection decisions of farmers and ranchers. We also in that paper looked for associations between DNA uh, genotypes between DNA variants and environmental variables. And so we were able to identify uh, some of those regions of the genome, some of those sequences on chromosomes, uh, some of the genes tagged by those DNA variants that were associated with environmental variation. The last piece of that research is we took the United States and divided it up into nine different regions based on precipitation, temperature, and elevation. And then instead of looking for that directional selection, those allele frequency changes over time across the United States, we looked at those allele frequency changes at each individual region uh, of the United States. And then once we had done it for all of the different regions, we looked for DNA variants that had large changes in allele frequency in one or two regions of the United States and basically didn't change in allele frequency in other regions of the United States. And when we looked at those results, part of what we saw was that we had across these five different regions, we had the allele frequencies coming to a common endpoint. So as we move from the 1980s up until the present time, in these different regions, the allele frequencies were always coming, becoming more similar across regions rather than getting different across regions, if we had those allele frequencies getting different across regions, that would be indicative of we're selecting these animals to match the environment. And so what our results would actually suggest is that if there was local adaptation in the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, at this point in time, due to how we've been breeding and selecting cattle, we've likely eroded, lost some of that local adaptation, that environmental resilience that we would have in beef cattle breeds. I guess let's go a little deeper in that, just talking about some of the impacts of that as we think about stress to cattle and their ability to perform an environment. As we think about bringing in outside genetics to that, what are some things that producers should think about as they're making those decisions beyond just looking at production traits? Yeah, so I think that's one of the things that I've really tried to emphasize as we've talked about that work is it's not a weakness of the 
genetic selection decisions that we have. It's not a weakness of the decisions that farmers and ranchers have had. It's simply the fact that uh, prior to a couple of years ago, we simply didn't have tools to select cattle to match their environment. And so we simply weren't providing uh, beef cattle producers with the EPDs, the genetic predictions, to match cattle to their environment. Now, environmental stress is a a tremendous impact on the loss of revenue that we see in beef cattle production. You know, if you look at estimates from a couple of decades ago and then adjust for inflation, we're probably losing billions of dollars of revenue in the beef industry, industry-wide, due to the reduced production due to environmental stressors. And so luckily, over the last couple of years, we have had some successes in actually creating those tools for farmers and ranchers to select cattle that can better deal with certain challenging environments. So the first big success that I wasn't a part of, uh, I've kind of watched as a third party, has been the PAP EPDs that Colorado State worked on for a long time. And then the Angus Association has launched a genetic prediction for. Those identify cattle that are more resilient to the stresses of high elevation. And it avoids some of the complications, uh, such as the congestive heart failure that some cattle can deal with at those high elevations. Uh, But if we look at some of the other work my group has done, one of the big functions that continued to pop up in these associations with environmental resilience was blood vessel uh, constriction or blood vessel uh, relaxing dilation. And so If we're in a high elevation environment, selecting for those animals that have more favorable uh, PAP EPDs would probably help those animals uh, even before they get to kind of the very acute stages of the chronic heart failure. The other success that my group has been very much involved in is the development of hair shedding EPDs. So this was based off of work that uh, Joe Casty and Trent Smith had done uh, and published back in 2011. Uh, we saw the, the promising results from their initial uh, publication. And so with that USDA funding, we were able to generate a very large data set of about 13,000 cows that had approximately 38,000 hair shedding scores. And we were able to kind of dig in to what was the biology of when we flip from the winter months where we need that longer, uh, thicker hair to when we go to summer where those cattle need those shorter, slicker coats. What are the environmental factors that give those animals the cue to switch those hair coats over? And what are the genetic factors that make animals shed off that winter hair earlier versus shedding off that winter hair uh, later. Again, the Angus Association has worked with us. Uh, Harley Durbin was an intern at Angus Genetics Incorporated uh, the summer of 2019, and she combined our data 
with some uh, Angus Foundation data that AGI had and was able to produce the first prototype hair shedding EPD. And then uh, Angus released a research EPD. And now uh, on every uh, Angus uh, pedigree, if there's been either DNA testing done or hair shedding phenotypes turned in, there is a hair shedding EPD published for those animals. As we just think about some of these, I would say, cattle situations, I think about some of these cattle that historically went feral. You've done some work looking at just what's the genetic makeup of those cattle, thinking about them being an environment where there hasn't been, I would say, artificial selection, but just natural selection for survival of the fittest. What are some of the things you've identified or seen in some of those populations of cattle where a survival of the fittest selection has been uh, taking place? And then how do those genetic populations compare to uh, our cattle breeds today where we've had quite a bit of purposeful selection for production traits. Yeah, so that's something that we're currently uh, trying to round up as many samples as we can from various uh, feral populations of cattle across uh, the world, actually. So uh, we're working with some researchers Craig Gifford at New Mexico State and also with the New Mexico Livestock Board to gather samples from uh, feral cattle in the Gila uh, National Forest. Uh, we're working to get uh, additional samples from feral cattle on Cherkoff Island off the coast of Alaska. Uh, we're working with some researchers in South Africa to get some feral uh, samples from feral cattle there. And then there's also uh, some feral cattle samples available near Hong Kong in, in, in China. And so really that project, we have kind of two major motivations. So I mentioned at the beginning that part of my research interest is understanding the history of cattle breeds. And what we would really like to understand is what was the selection that happened thousands of years ago when we first took wild cattle and domesticated them? Can we try to pinpoint the genes and the functions of those genes that were under selection by those very earliest of farmers? Now, it's difficult to get ancient DNA samples, especially lots and lots of ancient DNA samples. And so our hope is that we can identify those genes when we put the process in reverse. So when we take domesticated cattle and move them back into a wild environment, can we identify some of those genes that would be under selection from going from wild to domestic by looking at cattle that go from domestic to wild? Now, uh, a benefit or a, a, a side, an, an additional benefit of that project is in those feral populations, those cattle are no longer being managed. So they're no longer being given supplemental feed. They're no longer uh, being given uh, pest uh, parasite treatments. All of kind of these things that we try to provide an optimal environment for cattle, those feral cattle are no longer receiving. And so they're more at the mercy of, as you mentioned, natural selection. And so can we find, as we look at these cattle from all over the world, these feral cattle from all over the world, 
can we look for signatures that they're being selected for those particular environments? So again, doing this on, on a big scale, we're in the very early stages of, uh, we're still trying to round up samples, but we ha do have one publication from cattle from the Chirikoff Island. And what was interesting there is we're able to time the mixture of cattle from Russia that were brought to the islands, and then later cattle from the United States that were brought to the island, um, mostly Hereford cattle were brought to that island. We're able to see those patterns in their DNA. Uh, we had a small number of, of samples, but we were able to try to look at some of the selection that would have happened on that uh, island. And, and again, we just had 10 samples, so it was a little bit underpowered in terms of really having high confidence in the results, but it looked like there was possibly selection for immune functions, so dealing with uh, disease, and possibly also some selection for uh, genes related to cancer development. So yeah, we're just, we're very excited to get that project going to not only better understand the history of domestication, but also, again, to look at this problem of how do animals deal with the environmental stressors that they're living in? It's taking this conversation just a little bit different direction. As we think about epigenetic effects, we just think about the turning on, turning off of genes. As you think about that and you think about genetic selection that's happened, uh, really, I'd say real intensively over the last you know, 40, 50 years with the use of AI, widespread AI, how might that be impacting some of the adaptability of cattle today? Yeah, so I think it's important that we distinguish uh, physiological adaptation from genetic adaptation. So when I think about physiological adaptation, what I would be talking about in that context is let's say we move cattle from uh, Montana down to Florida. Now, if we were to uh, supplement those Montana cattle for a little bit uh, and give them some time, eventually their physiology would change uh, in terms of their ability to deal with the heat stress and their, their ability to uh, keep and put on weight and, and all of those things. And so kind of what I've heard anecdotally over time is that if you can help those cattle through the first year of being transported into a different environment, uh, they'll be able to kind of get their legs under them again. And so that would be more of the switching of their physiology that was maybe tuned to a, to a colder climate to switching that to a warmer climate. And, and that would be for whichever direction we're, we're moving cattle. So that would entail, you know, epigenetic changes and, and other ways in which the physiology of the animal would be regulated. Now, genetic adaptation, which is what most of what my work has focused on, is actually hard-coded in the DNA specific differences for that animal's ability to innately to be predisposed to either suffer from that environmental stress or to be more resilient to that environmental stress. So I think whenever we're thinking about beef systems and 
trying to get the the most efficiency and the most profitability and sustainability out of those beef systems we really want to have appropriate management practice and appropriate genetics selection that that hopefully work hand in hand and so uh, you know luckily the tools that we use for genetic evaluations are pretty good about separating those management and environment effects from the genetic effects. And we're able to just make our predictions based on genetics that are going to be in uh, predictably inherited generation after generation. But part of the downside to that is those models remove any of the genotype by environment interactions we would have and so we need to figure out the appropriate methods to give farmers and ranchers the tools to select for those genotype by environment interactions so as you look at the information you're gathering as you look at some of the tools that have already been in place what are things you would encourage farmers and ranchers to do as they think about genetic selection now within their own cow herd, trying to uh, drive their genetic selection towards cattle that fit their resource, uh, fit their environment, but also are productive and, and are meeting consumer demands and wants? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one of the thing that I've been really pleased with is the, uh, the acceptance of these new EPDs in terms of a PAP EPD and a hair shedding EPD. Uh, producers are seeing that these EPDs work, that they're providing accurate predictions of those animals' ability, in the case of hair shedding, to shed off that that winter hair quickly and to be prepared for those summer months. So that's been really rewarding to see the industry adoption of that technology and that EPD. So I would just encourage producers if you're in an area that perhaps will have mild to moderate heat stress, look for the opportunity to use those hair shedding EPDs to select better adapted cattle. Uh, the other kind of advice that I would give producers is as we continue to create the tools, we still have to kind of rely on lower tech solutions. So if you're in a very challenging environment and you're not happy with your animal's ability to cope with those challenges, uh, kind of the low tech recommendation that I would give producers is to select animals from a similar or the same environment as, as you're dealing with. So if you're in the fescue belt, say you're raising cattle in Missouri, you know, perhaps you're buying seed stock from a seed stock producer in Virginia who is also uh, on a fescue Kentucky 31 forage base. Or if you're in high elevation in Montana, you're buying genetics from Colorado um, that's just kind of the the low tech solution way, but it but it is a way to have a little bit more confidence that those animals will have either genetic or physiological adaptations to the challenging environment that you're dealing with. 
The other thing, and, and part of my continued motivation to work in this area, is I think as we move to lower input systems, or as some beef producers choose to move to a lower input system, I think in those lower input systems, the effect of these environmental stresses will become even more pronounced. And so if you're thinking about trying to use some lower input type strategies, I think you even need to have a, a, a bigger focus or, or keep an eye on that environmental adaptation. So, you know, one of the things we can do is we can cover up some of the stresses of that environmental adaptation or, or the, the environmental stress through our management. But if we're trying to minimize the resources that we're putting towards management, I would just caution producers that perhaps they'll see even more environmental stress in those systems. You think about farmers and ranchers who are selecting within their own herd, thinking about identifying animals that fit their resources and environment. What advice or what perspective would you give to them as they're making selections about re retaining replacement heifers, things like that? Yeah, uh, that's a that's an excellent question, and and I don't know that we have that formula completely figured out for all of the different contexts in which we would we would want to be successful with that. You know, so another area of my group's research is looking at the genetics of heifer puberty and fertility. So we're creating uh, novel new EPDs for heifer puberty and for quantitative measures of heifer fertility, not just a binary yes or no, did that heifer become pregnant in her first year, uh, but actually when in the breeding season did that heifer become pregnant. So we're working on that area to again create better and new tools for beef producers to have the genetics that are predisposed to success. One of the things that I think gets tricky is if we try to practice phenotypic selection, so selecting animals based on their performance, we really get to be at the mercy of the heritability of that trait. So if it's a highly heritable trait, uh, where a large proportion of the variation in that trait is due to additive genetics, we can probably make some fairly substantial genetic progress for that highly heritable trait. But if it's a lowly heritable trait, especially like health or fertility, we're going to have trouble making consistent and sustained genetic progress by selecting on those phenotypes, simply because our selection decisions aren't going to be nearly as, as accurate. Now, the nice thing that I've talked with my colleague Jordan Thomas about is we can do management and selection of those animals, not necessarily genetic selection, but we can select those animals that are performing well under our management practices. So that's kind of like selecting stocks from a stock market is we're going to identify those animals that are working within our system, maybe not with the goal of making genetic progress, but simply identifying those animals that perform well and match our environment and, and management practices. Dr. Decker, as you look at that, do you see 
potential antagonisms there where we're trying to find animals that fit our resources environment and yet uh, still enhance productivity, profitability. Is there is there an optimum that producers should be thinking about? How do we think about that? Yeah, so one of the traits that I've tried to get beef producers to think a little bit more about is actually mature cow size. So one of the, what I would argue is one of our great successes in beef cattle genetics is we've used EPDs to break the antagonism between birth weight and calving ease and growth at at weaning and yearling stages. So we've done a very good job of identifying those curve bender animals, those curve bender bulls that come small, come easy, but then they grow rapidly. Where I think we have a real opportunity and to really focus on animals that optimize uh, maternal production would be bending that end of the growth curve. So let's identify those animals that grow rapidly at weaning, at yearling, but then they have much more moderate uh, mature cow sizes. I think that's an opportunity that we have in terms of using these genetic tools to identify a female who's going to be uh, smaller and simply have uh, a lower maintenance energy requirement simply due to her size. I think I think that's one area where there's perhaps a little bit of for lack of a better term, low-hanging fruit in terms of matching cattle to a, a more efficient and a more perhaps sustainable genetic profile. You know, in terms of other traits, I think the the jury's still out. So I was kind of under the per, the the perception that perhaps we would want higher genetic merit for reproduction regardless of the environment. Uh, but there's been some work from some swine research that shows that there is um, uh, some genetic antagonisms between genetic potential for reproduction and environmental stress. So it's, uh, but perhaps that's a litter bearing species. And so that's why that difference is there. But I just say that to say, in terms of some of these other traits that we might want to think about or be concerned with, I don't know that we have the hard research yet to really pinpoint uh, which direction we need to be driving these things in terms of maximizing the match between genetics and environment. So stay tuned. Anything else on this topic that you think would be relevant for producers as they think about genetic selection, breeding decisions, and and trying to select cattle that fit their resources, fit their environment. And again, I think also have something that's desirable and, and fits the industry in terms of meeting consumer demands. So the big message that I would leave with beef producers is for our industry to be as, as profitable and efficient as possible. We really need to lay aside this question of do EPDs work or not. Every time we've done a field test or a validation experiment of uh, EPDs, genomic prediction indexes, 
every time these tools are validated. So we need to move away from kind of this pointless debate of do genetic prediction tools work or not. That's the wrong question to be asking because we've conclusively shown that these tools work. Now, what the work, what the questions we need to be asking and the deep thought and the considerations we need to be thinking about is how do I use these tools to be more profitable in my operation? So uh, do I need to be putting more emphasis on mature weight? Do I need to be putting more or less emphasis on weaning weight? Uh, is my calving ease at an acceptable level? Which of the various selection indexes should I be focusing on to maximize profitability in my operation? So I think there's a lot of strategic thinking and analyzing and really thinking deeply about our beef production system for our individual operation and how do I use the genetic tools to maximize the profitability of my operation. We need to move away from this question of if the tools work and we need to really do more of the deep thinking and, and the strategy of how I use these tools to be more productive. That's my opinion. That's my that's my soapbox. Dr. Decker, thanks for your time today. Again, I think the research you're doing is really relevant as we look at seeking to identify cattle that fit resources and environments and then also have value as we look at the beef industry as a whole. So thanks for your time today. Thanks for the work you're doing. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Well, for more information on the work that Dr. Jared Decker is doing, again, he's in the Animal Science Department at the University of Missouri. He does have a website there. And again, you can find more information at that website.